Section six of Unknown London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. Unknown London by Walter george bell chapter six an old city merchant's mansion walk the city through and you will find few surviving of the merchant's houses built immediately after the great fire of london when as a matter of course the wealthy adventurer who had ships and freights on every sea used his cellars as a convenient store and had his office on the ground floor and himself lived with his family in the rooms above he was a sober person much engrossed in his affairs and little addicted to the frivolities and licentiousness introduced with the restoration his place of business and residence reflected his own character in its plain exterior dependent for effect upon its studied sense of proportion its subdued scheme of decoration and the air of comfort unmixed with extravagance with which the owner delighted to surround himself the flames of sixteen sixty six drove many people westwards but the city remained what it had always been the great emporium of trade for there were no docks and tall warehouses stretching down the river to take the goods and the custom unbroken since the middle ages of living over the shop continued the goldsmiths with their running caches still did such banking as there was it was not until the middle of last century that the last of the merchants separated themselves entirely from their business premises leaving the city at night to the caretakers i recall my venerable friend the late sir thomas crosby m d an octogenarian when he became lord mayor telling me when over teacups and dry toast at the mansion house we exchanged reminiscences that his young days he had a considerable maternity practice among resident city housewives thousands who hurry by all hallows barking church do not know of the existence of one of these fine old merchants houses which stands unharmed close at hand number thirty four great tower street is an example of the type of mansion built after the restoration as excellent as it is rare it lies back concealed with only an open gateway and a few names painted at the side to indicate its presence pass into the courtyard and you have a welcome surprise for here is a city corner to be treasured the house is just such a one as must have been erected for a prosperous merchant in roomy mansion with spacious apartments and panels and carvings which convey the idea of generations of prosperity and commerce the house dates from about sixteen seventy a first impression is that its original surroundings must have been very different so fine a dwelling would not have been shut off from the street by a screen of mean houses they must stand upon what was its court or garden very likely there was a garden also at the rear perhaps with just a glimpse of the river 
though old London Bridge, itself then covered with houses, was too far distant to come into the picture. All this, however, is an illusion. Wren planned the city on a new model, extinguishing the medieval features, but the merchants were in too much of a hurry to wait for him, and rebuilt exactly upon the former sites. Some one of the few thousands of pounds, snatched out of the heat and flame which consumed London, built number 34 Great Tower Street. Ogilby's survey, made within ten years after the Great Fire, Ogilby died in 1676, shows in plan the existing house, and it is hemmed in exactly as it is today. Land was too valuable for gardens. There were many other large buildings, mostly modern, similarly concealed among the city's narrow courts. A picturesque flight of steps gives entrance. The lessees, Messrs. Dent, Erwick, and Yeatman, have the ground-floor offices over their extensive cellarage. The firm are wine merchants, who came here in 1821. It was a wine-house before them, and the atmosphere is redolent of pleasant vintages. The counting-house is the apartment on the right. To walk into it is to take a step backwards to the days when periwigs were worn, and stockings and buckled shoes, and the long coat of figured silk hat concealed the rapier. I doubt if the room has been at all altered this past century and a half. Some old Georgian panelling has replaced the original wainscot, and the arrangement is entirely that of an old-time merchant's office. Different from the fashion that now finds favor, the public are separated by an open iron rail, not in the front and in the best of the light, but at the back, though in close proximity to retiring rooms, wherein, over a glass of old Oporto, many a bargain in pipes and butts has been made these past two centuries. Business was not conducted in such a fever heat when the four Georges ruled, but men had time to gossip over the news of the day, and the plan seems to have realized the necessity of this element in commercial success. It is in keeping with its associations that the firm should have possessed a link back with the days when the prosperous merchant resided over his shop, Mr. W. H. Erwick, with a retired senior partner, not only lived with his parents at number 34 Great Tower Street, but was born there, and, when I talked with him shortly before his death in 1914, in his 90th year, he recalled many memories of bygone city life. It is curious to find among them the firm's letters a complaint of the noise made on the cobbled street, by carriages arriving and returning with guests attending the merchants' dinner parties. A vast deal of social life and entertainment has taken place in this and other city houses, which now is entirely foreign to them. Think how different were the conditions of business well within the old senior partner's memory, when every hogshead and cask had to be sent by sailing ship or along the highway. Jolly's wagon was a favorite means of conveyance in the late thirties of the last century, but there were many customers of the firm in places as far inland as Leeds, who preferred all the delays of a coast journey to the risks to which the carrier by road was exposed. There was a tremendous deal of peculation in transit. Nothing was easier than for some ill-doer to slip a gimlet into the side of a wine-cask, 
purchaser and vendor at the journey's end, being led into an acrimonious correspondence about short measure. Mr. Erwick told a story of a former partner, Mr. Dent, who died at the age of ninety-five a few years ago, and in early life touted with others for orders at the docks, when he was accosted by a gentleman. I was told I could buy a pipe of port here, he said, but I see no sign of wine. Can you direct me where to go? The would-be purchaser proved to be the Earl of Lovelace, who married the poet Byron's daughter. A deal was soon effected, and a check was being prepared, when Mr. Dent stopped the writer, remarking that there would be discount. Lord Lovelace glared at him. Discount, he roared. Sir, do you take me for a tradesman? And he completed the check for the full sum. It was an experience not likely to be repeated in these days. Although it is the times and customs of the Georges that the ground floor most readily brings to mind, there is older material above. The merchant's dining-room and its antechamber are at the head of the staircase with panelled walls brown with age, and carved cornices, an exquisite framework to the doors. Great chimney-breasts bring the fireplaces well out, and the mantelpieces are ornamented with bold carvings, deeply cut, of flowers and fruit and other decorations. A noble dining-room is this, wherein thirty guests might sit at table with comfort testimony to civic hospitality. Light floods the place through the tall windows. It fell upon these same panels and carvings, when grave traders of Anne and William and Mary assembled here, and many a toast was drunk to the prosperous voyage of ships, driving homewards before the wind. A counter and desks for clerks intrude in an apartment so obviously designed for good cheer. Old associations linger here, too. The occupants are Messrs. Wilkinson and Cavalier, West India merchants, a firm whose record goes back to the time when West India trade necessarily meant sugar and sugar meant slaves. Though they came to Great Tower Street only in 1848, their house is a century earlier. With it are linked the fortunes of the Earls of Harewood. Henry Lascelles was its founder in 1743, and with the wealth he brought from Barbados, he purchased the Harewood estate in Yorkshire, on which his son, created Baron Lascelles in 1790, built the present family seat. Lascelles recalls the famous election for Yorkshire. It was, perhaps, the most costly election ever fought, stupendous indeed. Parliament had been suddenly and unexpectedly dissolved in 1807, and William Wilberforce, the foremost champion of the abolition of the slave trade, who without a contest had represented the county for twenty-three years, was challenged by representatives of the two noble houses of Fitzwilliam and Harewood, namely Lord Milton, Whig, and Mr. Lassell, Tory. The bribery that went on makes one gasp for breath, an expenditure that would almost suffice for a general election throughout England, under the niggardly scale now permitted, was exhausted over the one seat. Lord Milton began his political career by letting loose a cool sixty thousand for the Whig party, and his total bill was said to have exceeded one hundred thousand. Mr. Lascelles drew thirty-three thousand from his bankers to start with, following this up by selling out consuls, and the Tory was no less lavish than the Whig. 
Lord Harewood declared, quote, that he was ready to spend his whole Barbados property to obtain the seat. End quote. Every voter in the county of Broad Acres had to be brought into York to poll, and in the competition for carriages, the most ramshackle vehicle was worth a little fortune. Hordes of attorneys, agents, and innkeepers were in the pay of one or the other of the candidates. Alarmed, as well they might be, at this outpouring of wealth, Wilberforce's supporters organized a national subscription to secure his election, and in ten days, 44,450 was contributed. And despite all, the abolitionist kept ahead during the whole fifteen days that the contest lasted, and won, the final return being, Wilberforce, 11,806 votes, Milton, 11,177, Lascelles, 10,989. Mr. Rutherford, today the senior partner, thinking me harmless allowed me to root about. In the early letter-books of the firm, I found much curious matter. What a field of history and anecdote awaiting exploration there must be lying on the dusty, upper shelves of city merchants' offices. The partners wrote at great length, and mixed their business with a good deal of current gossip of the day. As duplication was unknown, each letter was laboriously copied by hand by a clerk and one letter made to serve for a dozen different readers, the parts likely to interest being judiciously picked out. Thus, while the sea captain's intelligence was of freights and sailings, and the agent on the plantations heard of the partner's approval of his management of the sugar fields and slaves, the customer in molasses had a bit of early news to stimulate his curiosity. A morsel of scandal was judged not unwelcome, such as this was of the conduct of the cavalry of Dettingen, especially the horse blues. Quote, the blues at the beginning of the battle, when ordered to draw up to the enemy, reined back their horses, and could not be forced to stir a step, and soon after retreated, but were found again behind the infantry. End quote. The following lines were also written upon the occasion. Quote, a courier being asked from the army what news, said the greys were too bold too bashful the blues End quote. and then a loyal word for the last of our kings till george the fifth who saw war quote, his majesty george the second has got great reputation by the conduct and courage he showed and the success therein will be happy in its consequences the whole line of stuart had not altogether so much valor in all their actions as the king did in this one action, and that has made him so much the idol of the people, that there is not one Tory left in the whole kingdom. But at the same time, you know our country folks very well, and that the loss of a battle would lessen him again in their esteem. End quote. A letter of 1743 brings Sir Robert Walpole before us, a splendid figure still, when, having governed England from Westminster, like a sovereign for an entire generation the followers whom he had saturated with bribes deserted him and he withdrew to find consolation amid the magnificent surroundings he had made for himself at houghton personally incorrupt though the fountain of promiscuous corruption he had been able without expending a shilling that was not honestly his own 
to lay out two hundred thousand on buildings and land, and another forty thousand on pictures. The correspondent had arrived from Barbados, after a pleasant passage, and saw land that day six weeks. He tells, quote, I lodged one night with Lord Oxford, Sir Robert Walpole, at his retirement at Houghton, which is a noble house, and most magnificently furnished of anything I have ever seen. I saw by the inscription upon it that the building was begun in 1735. The dog kennel is a good house, and might serve a Christian family to live in. The gardens are equal to everything else, and separated from a park, where they are above a thousand deer, by a deep moat with a brick wall, built in the middle and no higher than the surface of the ground, called a haw-haw, which separation does not appear till you come near it, and upon the said brick wall are abundance of fine fruits, and for a vast space all around there are a vast variety of beauties, namely meadows, pastures, cornfields, fish-ponds, and great and many plantations of trees. There is not the appearance left of any individual thing which I saw there twenty-two years ago, except the parish church, and the whole looks like a new creation and a second paradise. The owner of all these fine things appears contented and cheerful, and I did think his situation happily changed in his decline of life, from the irksome grandeur of the former part of it. He was, the day I saw him, which was his birthday, arrived at his sixty-seventh year, and still preserves all the faculties of mind in full perfection. End quote. And here is a tragedy to find among a city merchant's letter-books. Dean Swift has absolutely lost his intellects. He had conveyed all his estate to certain trustees, to be disposed of after his death for charitable uses, and they seeing the state he was fallen into, and that he would squander away his fortune, got the guardianship of him to prevent it, and now, I am told, his servants exhibit him for a show for money, and he sits in a great chair, in an odd dress, and curses and swears incessantly. How vain is the greatest human genius, when this man, who laughed at the follies of all people, is becoming a laughing-stock for all the fools in Ireland. End quote. A curiosity of this old correspondence was that the merchant's year still began in April. Thus, a letter of 28th March, 1747, is immediately followed by one dated 3rd April, 1748. A division of time, which only the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Income Tax Commissioners now keep alive. There are a few of the associations of the house and its occupants. Its wealth of carving and aged brown panels recalls the earlier conditions of its worldwide trade, and it is pleasant to learn that there is a likelihood of number 34 Great Tower Street being preserved, unchanged and intact, for at least another century. Those who explore the house will notice the original staircase with the characteristic twisted rail leading to the uppermost floor and the flat roof whence comes, as always from a height, an illusion of the city very much more cramped and smaller than it appears below. End of section six. Recording by Greg Giordano. Newport Ritchie, Florida.